Um, we started months ago in the book of Genesis, Genesis 1, verse 1, where it says, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, right? And we've been walking from that first moment, that first spark of history, we've been walking forward through the book of Genesis now for the last few months. And for the last six weeks or so, we have been in this series that we're calling Journey of Faith. We're looking at the lives of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and Joseph, and we're going to be sort of trying to get a sense of what was it like for those patriarchs to walk with God by faith, what can we learn from that, um, and hopefully by now you've been starting to pick up on the fact, if you've been here, that there's a lot that is in common between Abraham's journey of faith and our journeys of faith. Um, for example, God calls us by grace. Remember that Abraham did nothing to seek God. He did nothing to earn God's favor. He did nothing to catch God's eye. We're not told any reason whatsoever why God chose Abraham to be the person who would be the one that he would begin the nation of Israel with. But just by pure grace, he chose him. He called him. He gave him the faith to believe, just as he does with every Christian. Uh, just like Abraham, God has a great plan for our lives. His plan for our lives is massive. It's way bigger than we could ever understand. And he gives it to us in little glimpses, doesn't he? And we don't get the whole story all at once, but it unfolds for us. And just like in the case of Abraham, God insists that we obey him. He insists that we trust him. He sort of defines faith, not in terms of what we say theologically, not in terms of what our intellectual belief is, but he defines faith in Abraham's life as obedience. And Abraham obeyed God. Abraham believed God. Abraham followed God, and God reckoned it to him as righteousness. And the same is true for us. And just like with Abraham, God intends to use us to be a blessing to others. He makes a covenant with us, just as he did with Abraham, but it's a covenant of pure grace. And just like with Abraham, there is a promised land promised to us. Amen. Amen. There, is a, there is a day that we are looking forward to, right? There is a day in which all of this will be done away with and we will be with him and the impediments of our faith will be moved out of the way and we'll be able to walk with him. The scripture says we will know him because we will see him as he is and we're going to be in that promised land based on faith. So it's not just that I wanted to give us all this history lesson and we could see where our faith began. It's I want us to see that God, the way that God worked with people then is the way that God works with people now. And so there's so much we can learn from the life of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob as we move ahead. Last week, we were in chapter 21 of Genesis, which means this week we'll be in Genesis 22. So if you want to start turning there, go ahead. But in, in Genesis 21, the big day arrived. Isaac was finally born, right? Now, some of you moms, if you've been like a week late in your delivery, you know, you're like, every mom I've ever heard is like, oh my God, get this child out of me now right? You reach this point where it has been long enough. You have waited long enough. You just want to hold this baby. Well, imagine what that was like for Sarah. And after all of her waiting in her old years, she gave birth to a child and his name was Isaac, which means laughter. But then 
Abraham, in chapter 21, faced this very serious threat to his faith, this very serious test, if you will, where God commands him to send away Ishmael, the son he had with that maidservant, right? And God insists that he sends them away, and God says, the focus is going to be on Isaac. And Abraham has this, this terrible crisis of belief where he either has to obey God and let his heart break as he sees his son go away as a teenager, or he has to disobey God and miss out on the blessings of walking in obedience. And he passes the test. And, and a lot of us as parents just kind of scratch our heads and say, wow, how could God ask him to do that? And wow, how could he do it? And yet he did. And it's reckoned to him as righteousness. Now, Genesis chapter 22 begins with all of this in mind. That's why I recapped it. Genesis 22 begins with these words. Now, it came about after these things that God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham, and he said, here I am. Now, I know that doesn't sound like I read very much, but bear with me. Um, it begins with these words, after these things. After what things? After all the things I just recapped. After, after all of these years of walking by faith. After all this experience. In fact, if you look back just one verse in chapter 21, verse 34, it says, and Abraham sojourned in the land of the Philistines for many days. And that phrase there in the Hebrew for many days is a, is a phrase that is only used for giant numbers. It was a long period of time that passes basically between uh, the last verse of chapter 21 and the first verse of chapter 22. And we're not told exactly how long, but we're given some clues and it turns out to be important to the story. So we're going to revisit that a little bit today. But it says, after these things, and, and it's just a phrase that's kind of hard to... Um, it's kind of hard to break down and put into English and translate exactly, but there, there's this, there's this um, paraphrase of the Bible called the message. And in the message, um, I actually like the way he says it. Instead of saying after these things, it says, after all this, after all this, after everything that has happened, this is not a reference to the amount of time that has passed. It doesn't mean like the next day, it means after all of these experiences, and we're going to see Abraham face a test now that is going to blow our minds, but understand, God didn't just meet Abraham one day and then give him this test. This is something more like a final exam. This is after all these years of walking with him and all the learning he's done and all the times he's seen God do what only God can do. After all these things, uh, there's a test that comes. So most of chapter 21 takes place uh, when Isaac is uh, about three or four years old, and then Abraham lives among the Philistines for many days, or, or literally a great many days, and then we come to this place. So it's been quite a while since chapter 21. At any rate, we are told right from the beginning of the story that God is about to test Abraham. So God calls him, and Abraham responds, here I am, verse 2. He said, take now your son, your only son whom you love, Isaac, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I will tell you. (laughs) 
That's a rather shocking turn of events, isn't it? If we were watching this in a movie, I'm, I promise you, the music would have changed right between verse 1 and verse 2, right? It would have become ominous. The lighting would have changed. The, the sense would have changed because, because we're just saying, oh, yeah, and, and he was walking with God, and, uh, and then God tested him, and here comes the test. I want you to kill your son and burn him. And he doesn't just say, kill your son. He says, you know that son of yours, your only son, the one whom you love, Isaac? He, he repeats versions of his name three times and reminds him he's the one you love, right? The one you've been waiting for, your only son, He's the only one you've got. He's the one I said was the son of the promise. And now basically it feels to Abraham like God has been pulling him along, pulling him along, pulling him along. And then he just pulls the carpet out from under him and he drops. I've made you this promise, but now I'm going to turn things upside down. And it's unexpected. Now I know it's not unexpected to you, but you've heard the story before. It was really unexpected to Abraham. It was shocking. And God just tells Abraham to do this like it's no big deal. Just a matter of fact thing. I want you to take your son and I want you to offer him as a burnt offering up on Mount Moriah. And if that's not shocking enough for us, look how shocking Abraham's response is. Verse 3. So Abraham arose early in the morning, saddled his donkey, took two of his young men with him, and Isaac his son, and he split wood for the burnt offering, and he arose and went to the place of which God had told him. You know, something amazing happens somewhere along the line on a journey of faith. The more experience we have with God the more we learn to trust him. The, the longer we walk with him, the more we see him behave as only God will behave, the more we see him do what only God can do, the more we experience him, the more we learn to trust him. You remember how Abraham responded just a few chapters ago when God said, hey, I'm gonna wipe out the city of Sodom? Abraham freaked Abraham starts negotiating with God. He starts begging God and trying to get God to change his mind. He is not having it, right? But here, God says, I'm going to just take the life of your only son. And he gets up in the morning, and he saddles a donkey, and he splits the wood, and he gets a couple of servants, and he gets his son, and they head out to the mountain. He does what any parent would consider unthinkable. He prepares to end his son's life. And if you're already having trouble with this story, welcome to the club. I don't like this story either. Now, there have been some moments when my kids were growing up. <laughs> but for the most part, I don't like this story. I don't get this. I remember when I was, um, let's see, I was a senior in high school, um, must have been about 18. Um, we had a um, um, dog that had been our dog since he was a pup when I was a little kid. Uh, he was um, a, what do, you, 
What do you call those gigantic dogs? Uh, St. Bernard. My goodness, all of a sudden, I, my brain went. Uh, he was a St. Bernard, and we'd had him since he was this big, and now he was this big, huge dog, right? We'd had him his whole life, and over the last couple of years, his health had really been deteriorating, and it was getting to the point where he was just suffering all the time, and the decision was made, it was time to have him put down. Now, if you've ever had to do this with a pet, you know what a, what a heart-wrenching thing this is to do. And I remember that my mom was all brave. She went and put sheets in the back of her car so the dog could get in the back seat. And this dog loved to ride in the car. Imagine a St. Bernard, right? So he didn't get to do this very often, but he loved to ride in the car. And she so we took him out to the car, and he was so excited. He was jumping and wagging his tail. It's the most energy he had shown in months. And she just lost it. And she just looked at me, tears pouring down her face because this dog was so excited. He was about to get led off on a great trip. And I took the keys, sent her back in the house, and I had to do that for her. That was with a pet. What is it like... For God to say, your heart of hearts, your own child, the one you've waited for all this time, it's time for you to give this child up. It's time for you to put this child to death. Now, before we go on with this great picture of faith, I feel like I need to hit a side note, and you're going to think I'm joking, but it's in all seriousness. If you ever think God is telling you to do something like this, Go get some counseling. This is not the kind of thing we should expect God to tell us. And it's unfortunate, but we have seen stories in the news, have we not, over the years, where a parent has killed their own children thinking, this was, I heard a voice in my head telling me I need to do this. If ever you feel like God is telling you to do something that is really out of line, that doesn't make sense with God's character, go get some counseling. We need to understand the way that God spoke to Abraham is not the way that God speaks to us. Abraham was a prophet. This was before the written word of God was available. And so God spoke directly to prophets, and then the prophets either spoke his message to the people or carried out what he told them to do. This was how God did it then. And so Abraham didn't have scripture to measure this against. He didn't have any, any way to, to know other than he had been walking with God all this time, and he knew God, and he knew God's voice, and he understood exactly what God was asking him to do. Today, the surest way that we can be confident that we're ever hearing from God is not a voice in our heads. It is not a prompting in our hearts. It is not a coincidental thing and a commercial came on right at the right time about this. It is, I pick up the written word of God and I read it. God speaks through the Bible. And that's how we have to trust him to speak. So if you're ever thinking, oh, I just feel like God wants me to do something, get some counsel. Because it could very well be that the Holy Spirit is moving in your heart, but you're, you're misunderstanding. Or it could be that you have uh, some sort of mental illness. It could be any level of things. But God is never, ever going to ask you to put your children to death. He's never going to ask you to do anything crazy like that. 
And you go, well, of course not. Who would ever think that? I have counseled numerous people who told me that although they were married to the wrong person, when they finally met the right person, they knew in their heart they were supposed to be with that person. And I say, the word of God says, thou shalt not commit adultery. You don't have to wonder if God is telling you to do something that the scripture tells you not to do. Okay, so that's my little side note commercial on that. Um, if you want to compare Abraham's faith to something in, in our lives today, you should think about some very clear command of scripture that God gives us that's hard to follow. Like, like scripture tells us over and over again to forgive, wholeheartedly forgive those who have harmed us. And a lot of times we go, whoa, that's asking too much. That's crazy. I could never do that. When the scripture tells us to do it, it's a matter of faith to say yes to God, but that's when the scripture tells us. So Abraham heard from God. He knew for sure what God was saying, and he acted immediately to obey. He saddled the donkey, split the wood, grabbed a couple of servants, got his son, and took off for Mount Moriah. Verse 4. On the third day, Abraham raised his eyes and saw the place from a distance. Abraham said to his young men, stay here with the donkey, and I and the lad will go over there, and we will worship and return to you. Now, every indication so far has been that Abraham is fully planning to do exactly what God told him to do on this mountain, right? He's going to kill and cremate his son. That's what he's planning to do. But did you notice what he said in verse 5? He says... We will go, worship, and return. And, and if we were to chop that up strangely in English and read it the way it's really written in Hebrew, it would say, we will go, we will worship, we will return. It's all we. They're going to go, they're going to worship, and they're going to return. Now, how can Abraham plan to kill Isaac but still say that he plans for them both to return. Well, the New Testament answers that for us. To leave, a, leave a marker there in Genesis 22 and go all the way to the back of your Bible and find the book of Hebrews. It's a big book near the back. And go to Hebrews chapter 11, where it uses Abraham as an example of faith for us. And I want you to just find Hebrews chapter 11, and we're going to pick this up in verse 17. Hebrews eleven seventeen, telling us the story of Abraham. By faith, Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac, and he who had received the promise was offering up his only begotten son. It was he to whom it was said, in Isaac your descendants shall be called. He considered that God is able to raise people even from the dead, from which he also received him back as a type. Now, so far, we haven't seen anybody raised from the dead. We've been following the story of God since Genesis 1.1. This concept of raising people from the dead, why would he even have this in his mind? But Hebrews, the author of Hebrews tells us that the reason that he could with such confidence head up the mountain was not that he was planning to disobey God and not kill his son. It's that he was planning to obey God fully kill his son, and he fully expected that God would just raise his son from the dead because he knew this from experience. If God says it, 
it will happen. And God had made the promise. He said, it's going to be through Isaac that you'll have all these descendants. And that hadn't happened yet. And so he was taking God at his word, believing that God could do something. And the writer of Hebrews points out, it's a type. What's a type? A type is a foreshadowing. It's a looking forward to the day when God would give up his only begotten son and he would be raised from the dead. The fact that he was executed, the fact that he was sacrificed did not mean that he would no longer live, right? He died. He was in the tomb three days, just as Isaac was traveling on the road three days to his destination. And he was as good as dead. But Abraham believed that on that third day, he could rise again. Listen, obeying God will never put his promises at risk. Obeying God is the pathway to the fulfillment of those promises. And by the way, to shed some more light on how long it's been since chapter 21, the exact same word is used to describe the young men, the servants, the men that he brought with them. The exact same word in Hebrew is used to describe those young men. In the New American Standard, it says that they are young men. And then when it uses in the same verse, the describes Isaac, it calls him a lad. They were young men and Isaac was a lad. Except when you look it up in the Hebrew, it is the exact same word. It is a word that means young men. So Isaac is a lad in his father's eyes, but by this point in his life, he's a young man. And I don't know whether that blows your mind or what that makes you think of, but a lot of us in Sunday school heard this story and we pictured Abraham with a little baby, right? Putting him on the altar. This is not Abraham putting a little baby on the altar. This is a 120-something-year-old man taking his 20-something-year-old son, binding him and putting him on the altar. You know what that tells me? Isaac was in full cooperation. Because if Isaac, the young man, had wanted to get away from Abraham, the old fart, you think he could have done that? I... I, I think the day is coming soon when Garrett will be faster than I am. <laughs> it happens. The clock goes. Time catches up. So Isaac is a young man. And he is not only the victim here. He is a willing participant in the sacrifice of his own life. How does this young man get that kind of faith. He was raised by Abraham. He had watched what God did in the life of a man of faith. He had seen the difference between what happens when you obey God and what happens when you disobey God. He knew that God could be trusted. So look at verse 6. It, it carries on. Go, we're back in 22 now, Genesis 22, verse 6. Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering and laid it on Isaac, his son, and he took in his hand the fire and the knife, so the two of them walked on together. Isaac spoke to Abraham, his father, and said, my father, and he said, here I am, my son, and he said, behold, the fire and the wood, but where's the lamb for the burnt offering? Abraham said, God will provide for himself the lamb for the burnt offering, my son. So the two of them walked on together. Isaac's not a little kid. He's the one carrying the heavy stuff up the hill, right? And Isaac asks his dad, where are they going to get an animal? And Abraham makes a statement that proves to be completely prophetic. He says, 
God will provide the lamb for the sacrifice. Verse 9. Then they came to the place of which God had told him, and Abram built an altar there and arranged the wood and bound his son Isaac and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. And Abraham stretched out his hand and he took the knife to slay his son. He did the unthinkable. Obviously, he was planning to do this. Everything was in place, the wood, the altar. His son was now laying on the altar and he reaches and grabs the knife. No hesitation. Because he had learned through the ups and downs of his journey with God that you could trust God even when you don't understand. Verse 11, but the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. And he said, here I am. He said, do not stretch out your hand against the lad and do nothing to him for now. I know that you fear God since you have not withheld your son, your only son from me. Then Abraham raised his eyes and looked and behold, behind him a ram caught in the thicket by his horns. And Abraham went and took the ram and offered him up for a burnt offering in the place of his son. Abraham called the name of that place, the Lord will provide, or Jehovah Jireh. As it is said to this day, in the mount of the Lord, it will be provided. Whew, that was close. And I know the story has a happy ending, but please tell me I'm not the only one who reads this story and thinks, oh my God, what a horrific story, right? It's a horrific story. And it, it begs this question, how could God ask such a thing? How could God ask such a thing? And there's probably many nuances to an answer to that. And maybe when you get to heaven, you can ask God this question. Hey, tell me about the Isaac thing. What were you thinking there? How could you ask such a thing of this father who had waited his whole life? You notice he didn't even ask the mother to do this. That was out of the question. <laughs> this father had waited his whole life. And you say, how can God, how can a good God how can a loving God be a bloodthirsty God? How could he require such a thing? And I don't have all those answers. I wouldn't even begin to guess, but I have a couple insights. The first is this, and you're not going to like it. He is God. He could do whatever he wants. I told you you're not going to like it. He's God, and that means he's in charge. He is God Almighty. That means he cannot be thwarted. He is sovereign. That means there is no one above him. There is no authority to whom he has to answer. He is God, and he can do whatever he wants. And I was thinking about that, and that's so unsatisfying to me. And, and it, it made me think, well... That's sort of true of the playground bully too, isn't it? The toughest kid on the playground? You can't stop him. He's just going to do whatever he wants. 
and, and he's in charge out there. So what is the difference between God and a bully? Here it is. God always and only does what is right. He's God and he can do whatever he wants, but he always and only does what is right. He would not, he could not do anything unjust because he's God and God cannot be unjust. He, he would not, could not be unwise. I sound, I sound like a Dr. Seuss. He would not, could not on a train. He, he, he couldn't be unwise. He couldn't be unloving. He couldn't ever do anything inappropriate. He is God, so he has all the power, but he also has all the wisdom, all the knowledge, all the love, all the grace, all the mercy, all the holiness. So we don't have to be afraid of a God who can do whatever he wants when he is the one and only true God. But we do have to face the fact, he's God and I'm not. And there are going to be times when, for that reason, he's going to make decisions I would never make and I'm going to have to submit to those decisions. And I know that answer is not very satisfying but it is 100% biblical. You can write this in your notes if you want. In Romans chapter 9, one of the weirdest, hardest to digest chapters in all of the scripture, in Romans chapter 9, Paul is making this argument about election and how God chooses some and doesn't choose others and how unsatisfying that truth is. And he, and he says in Romans 9, he sort of creates this this. Uh, argument back and forth where he says, you know, the, the, someone responds to him and says, well, then how is that fair? I mean, who can resist God? And in Romans chapter 9, verse 20, you can write that in your notes, look it up at home this week. In Romans chapter 9, verse 20, he says, on the contrary, who are you, O man, to answer back to God? And that's the end of the discussion. The, he doesn't explain any further than that. And the implication being that somehow God's right and you're wrong, even if you don't like it. God is God and I'm not. So that's one reason that God could ask such a thing. And because he is God and I'm not, his ways are beyond my understanding. And the sooner I can come to grips with that, the better things are going to go in my journey of faith. His ways are beyond my understanding. When I was about four years old, I was playing with my brother out in the yard, and my mom had this old pickup truck, and it was parked on the curb, and we decided to play in the back of the pickup truck, and we were just screwing around and wrestling and playing in the back of the pickup truck, and my brother, who was two years older than me, decided to show off, and he started walking along the rail of the pickup truck like it was a tightrope. And at the age of four, I said, that's cool. And so I got up there and I did the same thing. And no, I made it. What's wrong with you guys? Give me some credit. Then we realized that the tailgate was about a quarter as wide as the, as the rail. And so I tried the tailgate. And as I walked on the tailgate, guess what happened? You don't have the guts to guess. I fell. I fell from the tailgate, and I fell into the bed of the truck, and I hit my head right above my eye on the wheel well and just bust my head open. 
And so you know what happens when your forehead gets cut, right? Just blood everywhere. And I start to scream, and I'm holding my head like this, and I start to scream, and immediately my brother knows, "Uh uh-oh, I'm in trouble. (laughs) I was supposed to keep an eye. I know I'm in trouble. So my brother puts his hand over my mouth. (laughs) Stop the screaming, right? And then he peels my hand off of my head, and the blood just squirts out at him, and he screams. And so in response to his scream, my parents come running out. They take us to the hospital. We get there. Now, I've got a, a gash right above my eye. I mean, just where it's now covered by the eyebrow. And, um, you know, blood just all over me. And I had to get stitches. And I had to get the wound cleaned out. And I had to get a shot of whatever painkiller that they inject directly into the wound, right? Now, I was four. I don't mind telling you, it was at least two nurses and a doctor holding me down when they were taking that big needle and moving it toward my eye, right? And I was convinced that my life had become a nightmare. These people were killing me. Because there are some things that four, you just can't understand, right? And there are some things at 44 that you also can't understand, or 64, or 84. And when you get to be 94, there's even more things you don't understand, <laughs> right? But, but God understands. And so the only, thing, the only place you can find any, any solace is when you realize The God who is putting me through this loves me. The God who is putting me through this knows me. The God who is putting me through this has a plan for my life, and he has not left me. My friends, by nature, the fact that he is God, he always knows what is best, and he always does what is best, even when we don't understand. So I'm going to share this big principle. If you've been around here for any length of time, I've shared this a hundred times in a hundred different ways. This is one of those gigantic building block principles that if you can get this in place, it is going to help your walk with God the entire journey. Here's the big principle. Never judge God in light of your circumstances. Always judge your circumstances in light of who God is. If we get that backwards, we will fall apart. We will never succeed in our journey of faith when we get that backwards. When we look at our circumstances and they go up in front of us like filters, right? We see through those filters and all we can imagine is a terrible God, a a God who's not worth our trust, a God who can't can't, uh, be uh, taken at his word. Because after all, if God is so good, how can I be struggling so much? And if you were Abraham and God said to you, I want you to put your own son to death, what possible judgment could you make about the character of God except that he is a horrible creature? But here's the deal. He's not a creature at all. He's God. He's the creator. He is good. He is holy. He is just. He is wise. He is loving. He is all those things. And when those things go up in front of us like filters and we look at our circumstances through those filters, we see our circumstances very differently. 
And we realize that perhaps this good, holy, wonderful God is actually doing something that is for his glory and my benefit. And I just don't understand because he's that much bigger than I am. So Abraham was able to obey God because he had come to know God personally on his journey of faith. And his experience with God had taught him that God was worthy of his trust. So what has your experience with God taught you? As you you walk with God in this journey of faith, are you learning anything? Are you coming to understand some things about him? What has your journey taught you about God? Are you walking in obedience so that you can witness his faithfulness? Or do you find yourself running and hiding and then dealing with the consequences of that? Are you willing to trust him even when you don't understand what he's doing? Even when you do understand, but you don't like what he's doing? Are you willing to let your life be a living sacrifice? Once again, go to the New Testament, to the book of Romans. Pastor Ricky was reading to us from Romans this morning about how nothing could separate us from the love of God. I want us to go to Romans chapter 12 with that in mind. Romans chapter 12, verse 1. Paul says, therefore, I urge you, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. Earlier I said, imagine if God asked you to present your own child as a sacrifice. Romans 12 says, God asks you to present your own self as a sacrifice, a living sacrifice. To present yourself to God as a living sacrifice, which is your spiritual service of worship. And again, you say, how could he ask such a thing? And again, his word informs us just the verses right above it. Because chapter 12, verse 1 begins with the word, therefore. And therefore, it's referring to something before it. So look at chapter 11, beginning in verse 33, just the end of the chapter. Oh, the depth of the riches, both of the wisdom and knowledge of God. Turns out he's wise. Turns out he's knowledgeable. How unsearchable are his judgments and unfathomable his ways. Turns out he is beyond our understanding, right? For who has known the mind of the Lord or who became his counselor or who has first given to him that it might be paid back to him again? For from him and through him and to him are all things To him be the glory forever. Amen. Therefore, I urge you, present yourself as a living sacrifice. God knows you're not perfect. God knows you need rescuing sometimes. But God is always faithful to provide a ram in the thicket. That's what the gospel of Jesus is all about. Don't miss the symbolism in this story. Just like God, Abraham was willing to sacrifice his only begotten son. Just like Jesus, Isaac carried the wood for his own execution up the mountain. This sacrifice took place on Mount Moriah. God was very specific about that. Take him all the way to Mount Moriah. That's exactly where Solomon later built the temple by God's direction in the exact same spot 
where the sacrifice of Isaac was to take place, but God provided a ram in the thicket. In that spot, God directed Solomon to build the temple where all of the sacrifices were made, looking forward to the sacrifice that God would eventually provide. And the the city of Jerusalem grew up around this spot. And outside the city of Jerusalem, on one of those hills of Mount Moriah, Jesus Christ was crucified. You see, God did provide the perfect sacrifice. God gave up his only begotten son. That's why we're here. That's why we can have forgiveness. That's why we can have hope. That's why we can have eternal life. So with all of that in mind, let's remember who the perfect sacrifice is. And let's look back on Isaac and how Isaac didn't fight his father. He didn't refuse to be sacrificed, but he willingly laid his life down. Just as Paul asks us to do in Romans chapter 12, and just as the scripture says of Jesus, no one takes my life from me, I lay it down of my own accord. Don't miss the cross in Genesis 22. The whole thing is meant to point us to the one who will be the sacrifice, the one who will be the substitute. Jesus did not resist, but laid down his own life for you and me. On the night before he was slain, Jesus gathered his closest brothers, his friends, his associates, the ones that he had poured his life into, and he gathered them in the upper room. And he took bread, and he said, this is my body, which is for you, and he broke it. And he poured wine, and he said, this is my blood, which is poured out for you for the forgiveness of sins. And he said, I'm going to enter into a new covenant with you today, not a covenant of animal sacrifice, but a covenant of grace. And the grace of God was poured through Jesus Christ that next day on a hill on Mount Moriah. Those guys, they did not understand what, God, what Jesus was talking about. They didn't know what was about to happen. They didn't know what he was doing. And in the days to come, their faith would be terribly, terribly shaken And the question, how could God do such a thing, would just resonate in their heads. But in the end, they knew without a doubt that God could be trusted. And that Jesus is the one who is the perfect substitute. He's the ram in the thicket. He is the Passover lamb. He is the atonement goat on Yom Kippur. And all of these symbolic pictures point us to the only one who could be the sacrifice for us. And so today we have symbols, bread and juice, as a reminder of his body and his blood. And it's for every one of us who knows Jesus as Lord and Savior, every one of us who has said yes to God, every one of us who has entered into a a personal relationship with him, every one of us who's on a journey of faith. 
And, and maybe part of your journey right now is just asking questions and trying to figure all this out. Maybe you haven't yet come to the place where you have surrendered your life to Jesus and, and you have made worshiping him the point of your whole life. And if that's you, then I just want to thank you for being here and encourage you to keep coming back every week because you're going to hear more and more about this Jesus and how awesome he is. But if you already know him, you're invited to the table today. And he invites you and he says, come unto me all who are weary and heavy laden and I will give you rest. And he breaks the bread and he pours out the wine. This is my body given for you. This is my blood shed for you. A new covenant in grace. And he invites you to come. And so in a moment, we're going to bow our heads and pray. And I'm going to lead us in a brief prayer. And then you'll notice that there's a table up each aisle, almost each aisle, not in the middle. But there's four tables here. You just come to whatever one's close to you or wherever the shortest line is. And you tear off a piece of the bread remembering the body of Christ. And you dip it into the juice, remembering the blood of Christ, and you partake. And the scripture says that they then sang a hymn and went away. And everything changed the next day because the sacrifice was made. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you did not hold back your only begotten son. We thank you that looking upon us, you didn't just see riffraff that were not worth saving, but you saw those made in your own image who you wanted to have a relationship with. And so you made a way through Jesus Christ and his sacrifice. Thank you for the cross. Thank you for your broken body, Lord Jesus. Thank you for your shed blood. Thank you that only that shed blood can wash away our sins. And so we thank you, Father, that we can be called children of God even though we were once your enemies. And it's now with joy and celebration that we partake together in the Lord's Supper. May you be glorified in our hearts. In Jesus' name, amen. Come as you are led.
Father, words cannot describe how much we love you. There's no way to express how much you mean to us. We're here because you've given us life. We owe everything to you, and yet we could never begin to repay. We just fall at your feet, and we worship you. We give you all the praise, all the glory, all the honor, and all the thanks, for you are worthy. We confess, God, that often we don't understand, and we question you. Forgive us. Help us to remember who you are and to view our circumstances in light of that truth. Father, oftentimes we're just afraid to obey because we don't trust you enough. Help us, God, to learn from our experience with you. Help us as we experience this journey of faith to see you right in the middle of it. And for those who are weary, lift us up. For those who are doubting, Father, fill us with faith. Meet us where we are. Because we know this is not where you're going to leave us. Make us into the image of Jesus Christ. For we ask it in his precious name. Amen.